Clap once if you can hear me. Clap twice if you can hear me. So, listeners, we are going to call on you. What movies in the back-to-school vein would you like to listen to and talk about? Any movies from Ferris Bueller to Mean Girls to one of our very favorite movies, High School Musical. Please let us know any of the school-related movies you'd like to talk about. You can let us know on Instagram or Facebook or email us directly at goodfilmhuntingpodcast at gmail.com. Hello, and welcome to Good Film Hunting, the podcast where two sisters uh, in different parts of the country talk about movies with friends and family. And today we have a new friend um, to talk about a movie that we haven't done yet, and we're so excited. So I will let Eleanor briefly introduce our guest and movie. Excellent. Okay, so our guest today is Martin, and we met him actually through this podcast, which is very exciting. Um we, this past fall, did a podcast about Chitty Chitty Bang Bang with my, a professor from grad school, Denise McKenna, um, and it was a really interesting discussion, and we had Martin reach out about some of his thoughts based on the podcast and the film, and we were so impressed with his line, line of thought and articulation of ideas that we wanted to have him guest, and so Martin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, or even if you go by Martin or another name, well, <laughs> how much to learn? <laughs> my, my friends call me Marty. Perfect. Marty, into it. So, um, well, um, I'm a child of the 60s, and uh, I grew up watching Wonderful World of Disney, grew up um, going to Disney films when they were first in the theaters, um, and then I... Uh, got married and we had a daughter and uh she's 23 now but when she was little we uh, took advantage of the fact that there were plenty of vhs disney movies out there so um both in my own childhood and then in parenting we have um, i've been, certainly been exposed to and given some thought to a lot of disney movies uh, that's pretty much all the that's pretty much all I can say about any kind of credentials or expertise I have. Uh, in real life, I'm the building manager for the music school at Rice University down here in Houston, Texas. And uh, I'm an architectural historian and an uh, automotive historian and um, uh, basically just kind of a geek about a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> my background is in classical music, and that's what pays the bills. That's and that's amazing. impressive. That's why yes. very infrequently do we hear people say they're in classical music for the money. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Elder, what a true statement. Okay. I, anyway. I mean, but also the only credentials we really need, uh, I would say, are passion. And you clearly demonstrate that. As someone, I was describing my current reading list to a friend this past weekend, and I was like, way too excited because I took out an anthropology book on screen culture, a book on French parenting styles. I am not a parent and like a history. Nor are you French. I mean, but we don't need to mention that. (laughs) And I took out a history of 
uh, unionization in Wisconsin. And he was like, you possibly have too many interests. Um, so I appreciate yeah. the architecture history, automotive history. Same. It's great. We're passionate about lots of things. I actually just finished The Devil in the White City. And I know I'm like years oh. behind on that book, but it was so good. And then I live in Chicago currently. And um, this past weekend, I got to go on an architecture river boat tour. Oh, that's and so I cool. learned so much. Yeah, my brain just kind of exploded. I was like, Chicago is so cool. And it's so pretty. And the architecture is insane. Um, so yeah, architecture has actually been on my mind a lot recently. Yeah, so you, well, in Chicago, how can it not be? Uh, yeah, oh, so you learned about Burnham and Root and Daniel Burnham, the great architect of Chicago, and, uh, and, um, Frank Lloyd yeah. Wright was in the neighborhood we grew up in, and I worked at the Frank Lloyd Wright home studio, so we have so many thoughts on Frank Lloyd Wright. Oh, are yes. you, are you, oh, are you, are you from Oak Park? Yes. Yes. We're really into the prairie style. Like, for, for <laughs> yeah. my whole life, that will be like the epitome of architecture it's well, also what i understand to be domestic architecture because our home yeah. is in the prairie style or the home we grew up in so we love it well, that's really cool well that's actually one of my big interests and we could probably talk about that for this whole time so i'll i'll step away from that but i will just say that uh last summer uh, my wife and i went to chicago and i did this, we did the same boat tour that you're or a very similar one to what you just mentioned and uh it was really hot, but it was, you know, quite lovely. And it was really interesting to see the buildings and the stories behind them. You know, you spend a lot of time looking straight up in the air because those yes. buildings are so tall. And, yes. And but so it's that beautiful. It was so fun. It was so much fun. And it was so great to see that. And you can really see how important and influential the Chicago School of Architecture is. And then while we were there, we went to the uh, Roby House. Mm. And, oh. and, uh, and we actually drove there from Bartlesville, Oklahoma, which has a whole bunch of really weird architecture that I can tell you about offline sometime. <laughs> and on the way we and on the way we stopped at the Farnsworth House, which was which oh, is mm. so uh, so jealous. So uh, yeah, that's yeah. So anyway, Chicago. That's, that's Chicago. Chicago is great. We love Chicago. <laughs> the food, the architecture, the music. I mean, there's we just have a great time when we go there. Oh, I'm so glad. Chicago's great. Okay, so anyway, we are going to jump into sp speed friending, and you can answer in a word, a sentence, but it shouldn't take you all that long. Speed. <laughs> right, so, yeah. Um, our, so three questions that we're always going to ask people. We'll start with those. Okay. What was the favorite, what was your favorite part of today? Uh, my favorite part of today, probably yes. happening right now. Good. We're so glad. Um, secondly, what's your favorite day of the week? Um, that would probably have to be Saturday. Why? Uh, often there's an opportunity to sleep more than there is on other days of the week. <laughs> totally true. Okay. What is your dream travel destination? Um, well, let's just see. There are a lot of car museums that would make that list. I would, I would have to probably say some sort of big, some sort of, of tour of, uh, of the British Isles, Ooh. Uh, Ooh. you know, London and Scotland and 
Ireland and Wales. And, um, you know, I'm a history buff and a, and a car nut, and there's a great deal of stuff over there, um, both history and automotive and you name it, that's really not found here in the United States. So probably somewhere, somewhere in Great Britain. Uh, and, uh, and that has the added advantage of uh, no language barrier. That's true. Well, this also makes sense, your interest in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, because the whole concept of the car, um, what, just off the top of my head, in terms of museums, have you been to Los Angeles and visited the Peterson Automotive Museum? No, that's on the bucket list. Okay. Okay. Um, Because it's also free, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. No. And when we make it out to the West Coast, which will probably be within the next two or three years, we're going to do Peterson, Nethercut, probably the Mullen, uh, which is uh, which specializes, interestingly enough, in French Art Deco vehicles, since we're going to be talking about French stuff pretty soon. Um, But there's there's like the four biggie. There's like four biggies. It's Nethercut, Peterson, um, Mullen and um, Blackhawk. Those are the four biggies in LA. Mm. Now, if you really care about this kind of thing and you're curious, if you ever find yourself in Tennessee, you should go to the Lane Motor Museum in Nashville, which has the, the most um, thorough and complete collection of oddball cars, especially unusual and European rarities. And if you ever find yourself near Auburn, Indiana, there's there are several museums in that town. It's kind of that's kind of the biggest thing that happens in that town is the there are four there are four major car museums there. Interesting. Eleanor and I and Haley actually, our producer. Uh, so listeners, you don't hear from her, but we love her. Um, we all went to Notre Dame, so we grew up. Uh, well, didn't grow up, but we spent four years of our lives. Very close to the Studer, what is it? Studebaker. Oh, yeah, you were the, you were near the Studebaker National Museum. Mm-hmm. Yes, been yes. there. Those are RVs, yep. right? RVs? No. <laughs> what how are long, they? They're cars how, from the fifties. Yeah. Are they really? How long did you? How long were you in <laughs> South Bend? So Jeez. I'm not gonna lie to you. I did not make it to the Studebaker. <laughs> National well, but, Museum. Well, okay, no, I get that. But how can you live in South Bend for four years and not know what Studebaker is? Yeah, you know. Okay, here's here's the story of Studebaker in about 25 words. Studebaker okay. was one of the first manufacturers of wagons in in the 18th century. They made a huge amount of money making horse-drawn wagons for farmers, for uh, businessmen, tradesmen, you know, to carry goods. They built a lot of the first Conestoga wagons. They had one of the first really big, defense contracts when they built wagons for the U.S. Army during the Civil War. So they were very much in the wheel and body business. Then, like many other companies, when it became clear around the turn of the century that that, um, motorized transport was going to be something important, then they started applying what they knew about wheels and buggies to, uh, to, uh, to building prototypical cars and also trucks because their buggies had always been used for hauling cargo. So Studebaker was a truck company from for a long time. And oh. so Studebaker soldiered on quite, you know, they were a, a respected name, although not necessarily a prestigious one. They soldiered on for um, 
up until the depression and then the depression was really hard on a lot of manufacturers and they were in trouble but then a little thing called world war ii came along and they started making military trucks and tanks and and jeep-like vehicles and and so that really helped them they really they had mm. significant defense contracts and then uh after the war um several things happened that kind of put studebaker uh a disadvantage but basically studebaker was a small independent and the big companies like ford and general motors had these had incredible economies of scale and they were able to sell their cars really cheaply mm. and so in so doing they badly uh wounded studebaker and packard who uh, packard actually bought studebaker so that they could kind of maybe work out some sort of economy of scale or sharing platforms but it didn't work out it, it didn't end happily for any of them yeah. Studebaker petered out in the United States in 1964 and in Canada in 1966. Um, they still had some defense contracts that uh, that they would work on, although they weren't selling vehicles to the to the public uh, in the United States. Um, their big plant in South Bend now belongs to AM General, Uh-oh. and AM AM General was the defense and commercial division of amc american motors which we know of as rambler um but you've probably seen am general mail trucks and you've probably you probably know about the the humvee the military humvee was originally built by am general in the old studebaker plant and in fact Mm -hmm. had you been to the studebaker museum you would have seen a humvee there along with along with several studebaker trucks and cars and uh, they had a reputation for value and for good engineering, uh, they were not lavish or luxury cars. They were more toward the cheaper end of the spectrum. Mm. But uh, but Studebaker, it was an old and respected name. No. Well, you know what? I don't live very far, and I make it back to the bend frequently. So maybe I'll stop by. Yeah. And now you, you know. Yeah. Okay, and then our last question for you. What is your favorite morning beverage? Oh, coffee for sure. <laughs> cold there brew. There you go. Cold brew, okay. We have we have a cold brew uh little carafe and we make we set that up every night with our ice cubes and then we heat it up in the morning and it's it's really good. Oh, that sounds delightful. And we're not spending five bucks a cup for it at Starbucks. Yeah. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, let's jump in. Chitty chitty. Okay. No, we're not talking about chitty chitty. Yeah, don't, don't, <laughs> don't, like, don't get me. Yeah, doing. don't get me started on that. Okay. okay. So Marty, Marty, you picked the movie Aristocats. Why? Can you give us a synopsis of the movie Aristocats for some of our listeners who might not have watched the movie before? And then, um, from your synopsis, what was or what was the reason that you selected this movie out of any movie? Well, um, I mentioned several Disney movies, none of which I was really any more committed to than any other. And 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 you said, oh, let's do the Aristocats. Well, okay. <laughs> um, I, I don't have any real strong affection or non-affection for the Aristocats. I saw it in the theater. In 1970, and I saw it um, on VHS with my daughter probably once a week for several months. Once a week? Okay, so she was a fan. Yeah, she was a fan. My wife liked it, too. 
Um, I can't honestly say that it was life changing, but it's certainly uh, you know enjoyable. Um, yeah, you know, there is a there's a scene um, right near the beginning when the, the you've seen it right. I mean, if I oh, if yeah, I, yeah. I mean I I'm a little bit maybe at a little bit of an advantage because I just watched it last week to kind of do a little homework or what passes for homework and uh, <laughs> so. Um, yeah, there's this one scene early on where the kittens are all trying to get through the cat door at once. And Marie, the, the little girl, says, well, let me in first. I'm a lady. And mm -hmm. and one of the other ones, who's either Barely or Sir Toulouse, says, you're not a lady. You're not a lady. You're just a sister. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, and that, made us, that made us both laugh. Of course, maybe that's not the best thing to bring up when you're talking to two sisters. <laughs> no, uh, it's Okay. I mean, I feel like my brother would respond to us in that way. Oh yeah, we do have a yeah, we do have a younger brother, and yeah, he yeah. would probably say something like that. Yeah. Oh, For he sure. does all the time. He's the youngest though, so I think that also plays differently. No, we loved this movie growing up. Yes, we did. And similar to how how your daughter experienced, like we definitely had the VHS and would watch it frequently. And also something I think that was. Uh, part of the 90s were all of these Walt Disney themed sing-along videos so not only do I remember the movie mm -hmm. I remember particularly particular scenes and particular songs that would be put into other collections so I remember one there was one Disney collection just about colors and the song where uh they're like paint with their paws I remember so yes. clearly and what is bad is like even now I when I was re-watching parts of this movie it recently it was this whole idea of I was like now I want a finger paint and I <laughs> like that was my takeaway um okay but so you saw this movie in the theaters do you remember any any part of that experience or was it just like this was the disney movie that had come out so obviously you go to see it in the same way that now with kids when there's a new pixar movie when there's a new disney movie you just go because that's what families do uh i think it was more the latter okay uh, i just went because you know i would have been nine and so i was sort of uh getting you know, beginning to go to movies on my own, and but mostly kids' movies. So, um, so yeah, it was a chance to see a movie, and uh, there are a lot of sort of familiar elements in the Aristocats, which is, I guess, a good and bad thing. And and to me at that time, it was certainly very comforting that there are all these. And we'll probably get to this more later. There, as you know, there are a lot of plot points or elements uh, in the Aristocats that are very similar to things from other Disney movies of that period. Oh, for sure. And so though and and to a kid, you know, to us that looks maybe, you know, a little bit uh maybe uh careless, but to a kid it's you're right, it's very familiar. Very comforting. Yeah, I feel like this movie is like somewhat similar or you could put in the same camp as 101 Dalmatians. Like both kind of involve baby animals being taken away and stolen and having to find their way back to mom. Right? Oh, you're, yeah, you're 110% correct. You know, I was going to say that, but you said it better than I did. 
okay, this is the this is the last one that Walt did, that Walt approved, and it was and and oh. it came out in, it came out in 1970, but he it actually got green lighted in '63, but the Jungle Book came out, but just for the sake of. Um, uh, you, and that you, also involves a lost baby in a way. Right. What, right. There, the, the things I think that are most, and, and, and maybe I don't know if we need to talk about what, what happens in, in the Aristocats before I get into sort of all this blathering on about the plot. So let me quickly go through what happens. The Aristocats mm-hmm. is set, <clears throat> and they're very specific. They're very careful to tell us that it's set in Paris, 1910. Which they shouldn't have done because there are several anachronisms, but they say Paris 1910. And we are promptly treated to an adorably charming song by the just out of retirement Marie Chevalier. Oh, uh, I love him. With, with, uh, you know, with, with appropriately French accordion music, Naturellement les Aristocats. Right? It's, it's just adorable. And it, it has this little stylized black and white. Uh, images of the cats playing and at one point they're kind of marching along like they do later on the railroad tracks and it's in time with the music and it's just too adorable and there's even you know it starts off with a, a kitten knocking the r out of the word aristocrats kind of like the pixar light that squishes down the you know the 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 eye in pixar it's 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 obviously way before that but but you can kind of see maybe that sort of thing was sort of an inspiration all right mm-hmm. paris 1910 Mama Cat, Duchess, who is a Turkish Angora, very pampered indoor kitty, and her three kittens, two boys named Berlioz after the composer and Toulouse after the painter, and a daughter who looks like uh, her, a smaller version named Marie, live with a retired opera singer named Madame. I think her name is Madame Adelaide Bonfamille, although that's really more something from the books. And uh, I should mention that when I was a kid, Disney put out several hardback books of compilations, both of their animated stories, some of their science documentaries, and some of their um, live-action adventure films like Swiss Family Robinson and Kidnapped. And these were really great, and I read these things till the covers fell off. And so there is a, there's a, uh, a big section about the Aristocats, you know, the story, a, a novelization, so to speak, except it's not a novel, but you know what I mean. It's a... It's a, a telling of the story in print with outtakes, cells from the from the uh, movie, and I actually had read that um, several times before I saw the movie. Anyway, um, so um, the three cat, the four cats, Mama and three kittens, live with uh, Madame Adelaide, the retired opera singer. She has a lot of money, but she's getting on in years, and she decides to make a will, so she uh, invites her uh, her 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 attorney over and they're old friends and they flirt a little bit and they dance to Carmen's Habanera and then she says okay I'm gonna dictate my will and her attorney's about 110 years old but still very spry <laughs> but there are a lot of age jokes here and uh, he uh, and so she dictates her will and she wants she has a butler named Edgar who's sort of a stereotypical um, stiff upper lip British butler and uh, she wants to leave all of her money to the cats for their maintenance, and then she wants Edgar to inherit the money after the cats die. And Edgar overhears this through the speaking tube down in the kitchen and promptly decides he wants to get the cats out of the picture. Uh, 
and uh, so he, you know, he, he can't bring himself to kill them. I mean, I think he actually likes the cats. Uh, he feels a certain degree of, uh, of, of uh, protectiveness toward them. At least he has been, because he's been sort of their main caretaker and probably litter box cleaner, although you don't see that in the movie. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, so he decides to kidnap the cats. So he... Uh, he he drugs some cream with some sleeping pills and you know before you can count to ten the cats are out like a light and he scoops them up in a bag and puts them on his ridiculous motorcycle which is a bit <laughs> anachronistic and uh, and takes them out some very short distance into the countryside um, and uh, whereupon he is set upon by two um, dogs country dogs there's a bloodhound and a basset hound i think who chase the motorcycle and they can tell something you know something no good is happening and they anyway they uh, um, they chase edgar away and the cats get left out there in the out there in the french countryside and it starts to rain and and uh, their basket the basket that they're in gets soaked he put the bag in a basket and carried that in his motorcycle. So these um, pampered indoor kitties who only have like just kind of been out, ever out in their ritzy neighborhood are now out in the uh, out in the cold, out in the rain, out in the country, and uh, they do not know what to do. And uh, fortunately, uh, help arrives soon uh, in the form of a uh, a raffish alley cat named Thomas O'Malley um, and uh, Thomas O'Malley is uh, I should mention voiced by Phil Harris who also did the voice of Baloo the bear and in, in the Jungle Book and as, and he uh, uses a lot of the same kind of language and the same kind of vocal. <laughs> exactly. I didn't even voice. think about that. So oh, yeah, so many of the voices. He just yeah. Yeah. And so um Naturally, um, one would assume that Duchess has never met anyone quite so exciting, although her kittens had to come from somewhere. But um, <laughs> one would one would assume that uh, yeah, and not very long ago either, right? Because kitten is a, a kitten is a cat that's a year old or less. So um, so these kittens are really small. So they must you know they've only been they're only a few months old. So so Duchess had her liaison. You know, probably a year or so ago, but they don't really <laughs> mention that. So anyway, um, so O'Malley meets her. He's taken by her. Who wouldn't be? She's beautiful and charming, and she sounds like Eva Gabor. And uh, <laughs> um, and he agrees to uh, you know, to help her get back to Paris. And because he's a, you know, he's a real um, well, the, I can't really think of a word that's family friendly, but he's kind of a. Uh, you was, you know, we assume he's a player. Yeah, he's yes. a, he's he's definitely a player, and so he feeds her a line about a ma- taking her back to uh, to Paris on a magic carpet, and so anyway, he he stops a, he stops a milk truck by scaring the driver, and they, uh, um, you know, they get to ride, you know, some of the way back to Paris. Doesn't feel like very far. And uh, and then the driver sees them drinking the cream and kicks them out. So then they run into these two ridiculous uh, English geese who 
marched them back into Paris another mile or so. I mean, you really, I was really struck by this because when I was little, I thought they were like way far away. And, and just the timing of it and the fact that they don't seem to be gone for weeks or anything like that, they, mm. they don't, they're not that far away. So anyway, um, O'Malley gets them back into Paris with the help of his, these uh, geese waddling along and you know they don't they don't know where they are really and they don't know how to get home and they're really tired and uh so O'Malley wants to take them to his pad as he calls it which is a a loft or a garret and uh and some of his friends have dropped by and because it's a Disney movie of the 60s his friends play jazz and uh and so there are these cats that play trumpet and that one's modeled on uh, Louis Armstrong, and there's one who plays guitar, one who plays bass, and the one who plays piano, and um, and so the kids are exposed to jazz for the first time, uh, which is also an anachronism because jazz really didn't become a thing in France till after World War II, World War One. But okay, whatever. <laughs> and uh, so O'Malley introduces him to these. Um, to these jazz musicians and they become friends and and uh then uh, they try to go back and they find they try to go back to madame's house and they find the cat door locked and edgar catches them and he is going to dispatch them one more time but their friend roquefort the mouse runs away and at great peril to himself gets o'malley's attention and gets the attention of the other jazz playing alley cats who would like nothing better than to eat him and uh, and they all come and they uh, uh, they attack Edgar and release the cats and Madame is none the wiser except she now sees that uh, that Duchess has a new uh, has a new boyfriend (laughs) and there are all these other scruffy jazz playing stray cats around so she decides to leave her money to a um to a uh, how a home for st- all the uh, cats in Paris, so that's yes. the, that and, and oh and Edgar gets inadvertently shipped to Timbuktu, so that's uh, that's the, that's the Aristocats in a nutshell. Um, so a good nutshell. You're like really good at that. You well, very much I, covered the movie. Well, thank goodness I had watched it again. <laughs> Yeah, it okay. is. It has a complicated plot, and it's interesting yes. that I think if this movie didn't have kittens, because like children are attracted to this, I also yeah. seeing young things and also seeing small right. things, and if they didn't have that to follow along the entire time, I think that would be really challenging because it's, I mean, it's a pretty complicated mess. Um, and it also deals, and this is something I think that's interesting about Aristocats as opposed to some of the more contemporary animated films, because we see from the beginning who the villain is. And like kids very early on are able to attach bad intention um, or malvolent intention to the caretaker. Like we yeah. know he's bad. Um, yes. And so it's kind of fun because you know in a way that he will be punished, but you don't know how. (laughs) Yeah. Like thinking of it as a young viewer. 
from your perspective as a musician, what do you find to be like particularly notable about this film other than the inaccurate, inaccurate, uh, what a day, anachronism? <laughs> oh, well, thank you. That's a great question to pose to me. Um, I actually am willing to give the jazz anachronism a pass because it's so exciting the way it's used in the movie. Yeah. And, and, and what, and what it happened and it, and what happens with it is, uh, you know, it is basically exposing the kids. I keep thinking of them as kids because you're absolutely right. They're juveniles. Um, and uh, and uh, exposing them to the wider world, exposing them to something that was really exciting, exposing them to people, people, cats, characters that they wouldn't have already, already seen. Uh, you know, I think that song is really effective. Um, I think the opening song with Maurice Chevalier is absolutely 100% um, charming. But I got to kick, uh, I got to say one other thing that I was very pleasantly surprised by. There's a song, you, you mentioned it, the one where uh, they are, uh, where they're painting and when they're practicing mm -hmm. scales and arpeggios. And, yes. and they are singing, they are singing scales and arpeggios. They are singing sight singing exercises. And when they sing things like sol fa mi re, sol fa mi re, that is something which we music geeks call solfeggio, and it's where each pitch has its own, hmm. it's has its own specific syllable. Do re mi fa sol la ti do. That's where that comes from, but it that can be used to kind of associate it with certain pitches when you're singing. So if you hear somebody say sol fa mi re do or something like that, that's actually a thing. And they did it, and I was going, "Wow, that's solfege. That's what that is, and it's real solfege." So that was a cool thing that Richard and Robert Sherman threw in there. Also, when you see the kitten on the keys, what he's playing is what he's actually playing. I mean, they put they they put they put him on the right notes oh. at the right time. Yeah, and that was really cool. When I think that part of it is awesome. Will they show this? Go ahead, Will they show this? Well in the movie Saving Mr. Banks, but Richard and uh, the Sherman brothers composed on the Disney lot. And so it would have been really easy to bring in the animators right. to observe. So I think thinking through that, and especially if we, if we think of the Disney lot in the late sixties, um, it was intended to be very communal and it was a high, there was still a high kind of prestige put on the artistry that the studio a little bit lost in the 80s before the Disney Renaissance. Um, but as we can say, like, this is the, the last one that really had Walt Disney's handprint on it in a way. And I, when we take into consideration the fact that the film is us with art and with music, I think that plays into kind of like the swan song idea of, because then we move it. The next animated film that comes after this is Robin Hood. And that was very oh. clearly intended more um, to attract like a boy audience. Um, yes. So, it, and now, like, this was kind of like the last gender neutral film for a while. Yeah. And I mean, I'm trying to think back to like when we were children and we watched this. And from, our, from what I remember, our little brother Teddy also enjoyed this movie. Like, it wasn't like he didn't view the Aristocats as a girl movie. He thought yeah. it was a fun movie. And I mean, granted, so all three of us growing up were in choir, so we knew um, the Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, La, Ti, Do. Yeah. You know, like, we knew that. So I think that that was probably really fun for us, too, to come and connect to it in that way. 
Um, but I wonder if, like, we also learned some of that from this movie. Like, I hadn't ever asked myself that, but it's very possible. Well, there's an excellent chance that that's the very first time you ever heard it used that way. Now, yeah. it, now it's not a big, it's a bit, it's not a big part of it, so it's not like they were trying to emphasize it. But, it's kind of, but I think in some ways it's even it's even more appealing because it's tossed off that way. It's one of those really cute right. little details that makes Disney so, you know, so great when Disney is great. Mm-hmm. It's when they sweat the yeah. small stuff like that. Um, Agreed. And, well, yeah. and it's and so much of this film is the interplay of music and color and in the song everybody wants to be a cat i think that's so prevalent yeah. right because we're in this contained space and then it involves these flashes of light that yeah. are not in the diegesis like they're not in within the world of the film yeah. like this is something yeah. it's a personal interpretation of the jazz music um, oh I, yeah i think you're being way too kind <laughs> um <laughs> I was going to rant and rave about this. So Ooh, explain. Your, Do, but, please. So, so, so with your permission, I will rant briefly about that. Run with it. That whole scene with the with the primary colors and the way that they change in, in a pattern looks very much to me to be a, a an artifact of its time, 1968, 1969, and, and to be a graphic design choice that was influenced by psychedelia. Now it's not a now it's not a psychedelic scene in the movie, and they're not playing rock and roll, and they're not hippies. Nonetheless, that kind of visual style with those colors, and and you're right to point out that they're not really part of the color palette of the movie. It's not really part of the way that color functions in the movie or color changes in the movie. It it very much looks sort of 1968 discotheque to me. And it looks like that was done in an effort to sort of make it, quote, contemporary, unquote, or or ever so slightly hip. And to me, that's very much a part of the time, not a 1910 anachronism, but a 1968-69 anachronism. Or not anachronism, I mean, it's a, it, but it looks dated now, and it looks dated because of the 60s. Well, okay, so I hear that, but also, I re- and this is something I remember in my undergraduate film class that was just on Disney film culture, it was a point that I had never considered in all of my thinking about Disney. And my professor brought up the point, like we forget that the people working on this film for the most part were like, especially at this time, young guys in their twenties. And so to the, and so when we think of like, Oh, are there hidden messages or, Oh, like that kind of looks like adult an adult anatomy, like we'll see in some Disney films and stuff. So the fact that it would have been guys in their 20s and 30s who were possibly experimenting with drugs on their own, especially living in Los Angeles in the 60s, um, that makes sense. Um, I wonder if anything, like particularly with the primary colors, if we think about jazz, or because the voice actors other than the main cat, like uh, Thomas O'Malley, is voiced by like a white actor and if we think about like appropriation in this film too similar to how we view it in jungle book that precedes that but these are unformulated thoughts currently but (laughs) what oh i thought you had something my apologies no i was just laughing at you uh per yeah i so you know what's kind of interesting i yeah sorry so this movie um I mean, 
Unfortunately, like, today, and again, granted, I haven't seen this movie in a while, but, like, what mostly sticks out in my brain is everybody wants to be a cat. Like, that is the kind of, I don't know, iconic scene in my brain. But I was mentioning, so I'm a teacher, and um, today, I teach fifth graders, but today it was, like, the best afternoon I've ever had ever as a teacher. We spent, like, an hour doing karaoke with, like, mixed grade levels because and this is the future of america the future of america it was so fun and then i do run a strong woman book club which is like a group of girls and we all meet and talk about strong women and boys i should say there are like male allies and they're great but to celebrate the end of the year we went to a soul cycle class today also awesome and we all left and we were like we're the best ever <laughs> like so many endorphins and i was mentioning to them that i was going home and podcasting about the aristocats and they were all like oh my gosh that is such a great movie now i want to go home and watch the aristocats and truthfully i didn't expect that to be their reaction not because it's not a great movie just because like i never like really think about it like i personally hate cats and, like, some people really <laughs> like cats, but, like, I hate cats. So I don't know if it's just that, like, I avoid cats with all of my being. But, like, these 12-year-olds today were, like, so excited about this movie. And that wow. made me happy. Because it That's is, very... like, I don't, I just didn't expect it. Yeah, I, I'm not sure why that would be. You're closer to it than I am. Maybe they saw it a lot when they were little. You know, because these things come out every seven years or so, and maybe they saw it when they were little, and now it's nostalgic for them. All right, this is your producer, Haley. Thanks for joining us for part one of a two-part series where we discuss Aristocats with special guest Marty Merritt. We'll be back next week to finish it up, but until then, please feel free to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you in the meantime. Thanks. Thanks.